Take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to the Gospel of Luke. So we have the privilege to come again to read these precious words of Scripture, to hear our Savior's voice in them, and be reminded of what life is truly all about. Our text this morning is Luke 13, beginning at verse 18. We'll read from verse 18 through verse 30. He, Jesus, said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Let us pray together. Father God, this is your holy word. Give us reverence in our hearts, O God. Reverence, Lord, that looks to you in adoration and respect. Reverence, Father God, that wants to drink deeply of your truth so that we may draw near to your person and, and be conformed to Christ our Savior. Give us, give us, Lord, a reverence that is born out in lives wholly devoted to Christ. Lives of holiness, Lord, where we seek to put on the robes of righteousness that make us fit for eternity, Lord, the robes of Christ that He so freely gives. Guide us now in the truth, O Lord. In your precious name we pray. Amen. When was the last time that you went through your pantry and your refrigerator to discard things that were expired? No, just a, just a year or two ago, Lisa helped her mom down in Florida. She just wanted to go through her house and kind of do a deep cleaning and everything, and and at the back of her mother's pantry, she found canned goods dated all the way back to 2002. You know, and this is one of the things that I, I often counsel young couples, especially couples that are looking to get married. I counsel them, this is something that you need to be equally yoked in, is how you view expiration dates, right? Because, you know, there, there are some people like the expiration date is the expiration date. Once you reach the expiration date, that's it. It goes in the garbage, period. End of discussion. And there are others that are kind of in that middle squishy place. They're like, no, it's a sell-by date. 
You know, we have more time. Smell it, check it, test it, you know, see if it's bad. And then you have people that are all the way at the other end, like, you know, the mayonnaise has a gray wig over the top of it. Oh, scrape it off. The stuff underneath is good. So couples need to understand that about one another because you want to know what you're eating. You know, expiration dates are put on food items for our good. Expiration dates are there to protect us from literally poisoning ourselves and making ourselves sick. People very often, and I dare say Christians very often, fail to realize that there is an expiration date on the offer of salvation. When it comes, you don't get a second more. Whether it is the day that Christ returns or the day you draw your last breath, there will come a point when your opportunity to turn in faith to Jesus Christ will have fleeted by. And you will face God not as a father, but as a judge. It is that very thing that Christ warns us about in the text this morning. We're going to look at this text through three different points today. And we're going to consider first the ascending power of the kingdom. The ascending power of the kingdom. Here in the first few verses, we have Jesus using two metaphors to describe and to help people understand what the kingdom of God is like. At this time, he begins first with the mustard seed. And at this time in Palestine, the mustard seed was the smallest amongst all the seeds planted in the fields and gardens of the Israelites. Again, a mustard seed is not much bigger than a coarse grain of sand. It's about that size. The seeds of other plants and vegetables and crops that they grew, like barley, wheat, lentils, beans, those, those seeds were all much, much larger. But here you had this itty-bitty mustard seed, and when the mustard seed was planted and grew to full maturity, even though it was the smallest of the seeds, it was larger than any other plant grown in the fields and gardens of Palestine. A well-tended mustard plant would grow to around 10 to 15 feet tall and be very wide. Now, in comparison to something like an oak tree or redwood, we might refer to a mustard seed uh, plant merely as a large shrub or a small tree. But in comparison to all the other plants that the Israelites sowed and harvested food from, the mustard plant could indeed be likened to a tree, a tree large enough to draw birds that would come and nest in its branches. In the second parable, Jesus likened the kingdom of heaven to, to leaven or yeast, which a woman t took and hid in three peck measures of meal until it was all leavened. Now, typically in the scriptures, we often see, especially the Apostle Paul, use leaven in a negative sense, right? Leaven is, is used oftentimes as a metaphor for how sin and how sin can work its way in and spread if you're not careful. But in this particular context, it is used in a very positive manner. When any of us makes homemade bread today, we use baking powder or actual yeast in our recipes to make the bread rise to create small air pockets in the bread so that when it bakes, it's soft and pliable. Bread made without leaven has no air pockets and is essentially hard after it's baked, like a cracker. So what yeast does on a chemical level is convert the fermentable sugars in the dough into carbon dioxide and ethanol, thus making small air bubbles that change both the taste and the texture of the bread. 
Well, in ancient times, you could not buy self-rising flour, baking powder, or, or simply a container of yeast like we do today. Back then, when women were making bread for their household, before they put the loaves in the oven, they would tear off a small amount of dough from the batch of bread that, they had, that had already risen, just about enough to fit in your hand like that. And they would set it aside. And when they began to mix up the next batch of dough for bread, they would work that into the mix. That small amount had enough leaven from the previous batch to help that entire loaf grow. That small amount would rapidly spread and leaven all the new dough in a matter of hours. Historically, even on a woman's wedding day, her mother would give her a small amount of leavened dough that would be the source of bread for her family for the rest of her life. Now, this woman, it says, took the leaven and kneaded it into three measures or peck measures of flour, which depending on which conversion you use would be anywhere to about, from about 20 to 40 liters of flour, enough bread, enough to make bread for 50 to 100 people. This would have been an exceptional amount of bread for a woman to make, likely for a large gathering or maybe even a wedding feast. The purpose of both of these parables, brothers and sisters, is to teach us the ascending power of the kingdom. Or how the kingdom grows to influence the world as it transforms people. The mustard plant re represents that amazing growth. You have the smallest seed in the garden growing to become the largest plant in the garden. Likewise, the kingdom of God began very small. With Christ coming and pouring himself and his life into 12 men. In comparison to the needs of the world, the needs of all mankind, that was a tiny, humbling beginning. But in time, this tiny seed would grow to be larger than any other plant and even become a home for the birds of the air. In the same way, the kingdom of heaven in the future will be the greatest of all. So much so that even people from other nations will come and find a welcome home within it. And we see this kind of imagery of birds finding shelter in large trees used of Babylon in Daniel 4 and Assyria in Ezekiel 31. This is pointing to how the kingdom of Israel will even welcome in Gentiles. Similarly, just as a small amount of yeast can leaven three measures of, of dough, so too the kingdom of heaven from very small beginnings permeates everything. It brings about continual transformation in the minds and hearts of men. The lesson of both of these metaphors is that disciples of the kingdom should never underestimate humble beginnings. This is what Jesus is telling those who have ears to hear. What the Lord begins in a very inauspicious way, He will bring to conclusion on a grand and glorious scale. What began with Jesus and His 12 disciples has, in the course of human history, become the saving faith, literally, of billions. Indeed, brothers and sisters, Christianity has defined and impacted entire nations and social systems. Christian moral standards have become the basis for international law, education, science, economics, human rights, and countless other areas. All have been driven and impacted by Christianity. So much so that virtually no society in the past 2,000 years has remained unaffected by the influence of biblical Christianity. And if that has happened already, just imagine what is yet to come. And, and this is where I would really draw our minds and hearts as we think of this. So many times we can get into a state where we as Christians are, are kind of just very much focused on our, on our own little world. 
We understand the blessings of salvation, the doctrines of the Bible. We are grateful for for the work of God and Christ on our behalf. We are blessed by, by what we see in our church, and we are thankful for the ministry that our church affords. But even knowing and understanding those things, we can forget that we are part of a greater cloud of witnesses. That we are children, citizens of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We are part of a movement that is being ushered in by and through Jesus Christ and His Holy Spirit as He redeems men and women from all over the globe. And it is our privilege, brothers and sisters, to be part of that. Sometimes we give ourselves over to spiritual navel-gazing. We're very focused inwardly. And yet, very often, numb or, or just ignorant or, or just you know, neglectful of what Christ is doing on a global scale. I would just encourage us this day to lift our eyes, to hear these parables of the kingdom and see and understand and, and wonder at the work of Christ that is being accomplished in so many ways and in so many places. And as we are drawn to wonder at the work of Christ, at the power of Christ, at the witness of Christ, at the kingdom of Christ, let us be fervent and faithful to join with Him in that. Because each of us, brothers and sisters, have a part, a role to play as we live minister according to our giftedness. This is what Paul talked about even to the Colossians when he said in Colossians 1, beginning of verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. As those who have heard the gospel and understand the grace of God in truth, may we rejoice had our privilege to participate and be a part of his kingdom. That leads to the next thing that Christ says, which is my second point, the narrow door to the kingdom. The narrow door to the kingdom. As Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem, someone asked him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And so he said to them, verse 24, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. You know, as we read verse 24, we really fix on that phrase, narrow door. Those two words bring to mind two other passages. One of them in Matthew 7, about the wide and narrow gate, where Jesus said in verses 13 and 14, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And so it calls to to our minds that imagery of the narrow gate. It also calls to our minds John 10, where Jesus identifies himself as the door. John 10, beginning of verse 7, Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. Now, our passage here in Luke, together with those passages in Matthew and John, all of these teach one irrevocable truth. There is one way of salvation, one narrow door. 
There is another way, a wider way, that most men and women tend to travel, but the few who will be saved are the few who find that narrow path, that narrow door. And what's interesting here is the word narrow. I, I don't often go into etymology of Greek words much anymore, but this really is an interesting word. It comes from the Greek word stenos, which literally is from a root that means to groan. In other words, it's, it denotes an opening or a gate or a door that is small, straight, and confining. Something that is so tight, you have to groan or squeeze to get through it. Something restrictive. If I could capture the heart of what Jesus means with his use of this metaphor, I would say that the wide way is the one that is accommodating to our natural inclinations, while the narrow door is the one that is counter to our natural inclinations. The wide way is the one that is popular and acceptable to sinful humanity, while the narrow door is the one that is exclusive and averse to sinful humanity. The narrow door, brothers and sisters, is tight and straight, which means you have to let go of the crookedness of the world to get through it. As we stop and think about this, we realize that these are always the two choices that have laid before humanity. Will we choose God or will we choose self? Will we choose Christ or will we choose the world? Adam and Eve faced those two choices. Noah faced those two choices. Abraham faced those two choices. Moses, David, Daniel, as well as Peter, John, and Paul, all of them faced those two choices. Even Jesus, when he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, faced those two choices. Christ, glory of God, or the world. And brothers and sisters, we face them every day as well. God's command from the beginning was to choose Him. And Christ's command to all men today is to choose Him, to enter at the right point, to begin at the right place, to enter through the narrow door. The way of the world is alluring and attractive. To enter it, to enter through it requires no sacrifice, no change, and no consideration of consequences. Through there, you can believe what you want to believe and do what you want to do. It's wide enough to accommodate anything and everything contrived by the hearts of men. That's why it's the popular choice. But that's not so with the narrow door. The narrow door is Christ. To enter through Him, you must deny yourself and take up your cross. You must live by faith in His perfect person and work. You must die to your heart's natural desires and inclinations. To enter by the narrow door, you must have Jesus as the exclusive object of your faith or all is for naught. That is why Jesus presents Himself here very clearly as the entry point for admission to the kingdom. As He said later in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This doctrine is what is known as the exclusivity of Christ or the exclusivity of the gospel. It's the idea that Jesus alone is the only way of salvation. And you know, this is one of the reasons that the world hates us. They say men may have religion, especially that which teaches tolerance and moral goodness, but do not presume to tell me that Christianity is right and every other religion is wrong. How dare you be so arrogant? You're nothing but a religious bigot. That's what the world would say to us and does say to us. 
They hate us for drawing a very clear line in their ever-shifting sands. But it's unmistakable, brothers and sisters, Jesus is the only way of salvation. In Acts 4, verse 12, it says, There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You can have devoted followers in Islam, devoted followers in Hinduism, devoted followers in Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses and all these other religions. But hear me very clearly. None of those is the narrow gate. All of them are on the path to hell. Jesus Christ is the door, the way of salvation. We must trust in Him. The way of the world is the way to destruction. That's what Jesus wants us to understand. And that's why I plead with any of you within the sound of my voice, this very day, understand the offer of forgiveness and salvation that is held out to you in Jesus. He lived the life of perfect sinlessness, attaining to the perfect standard of righteousness before His Father because none of us could. He died the, the, the sinner's death on the cross bearing the wrath of God in our place. And He rose from the grave on the third day, defeating death so that by trusting in Him, we too may have eternal life. Understand that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. You will not be able to stand before God one day and plead any other truth, any other factor of your own good works, any other faith that this world has to offer. The only thing, the only thing that gives us entrance to His presence for eternity is faith in Jesus Christ alone. Please turn from your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ this day. It's not spiritual bigotry to contend for the exclusivity of the gospel. It is love to plead with you to consider the one person who alone can save you from eternal damnation. That takes me to my third point, the terminal window for the kingdom. The terminal window for the kingdom. Jesus continues in verse 25, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside to knock on the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer to you, I do not know where you come from. This part of our passage teaches a pretty straightforward truth. Jesus is the master of the house, the same one who opened the door of salvation, who stands there now with open arms saying, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. This same Savior who now greets you with open arms will be the one who one day shuts the door tight. And there are going to be a lot of people shut outside that door who are going to wonder why the door was shut to them and why they aren't on the other side. Religious people who believe they belong with Christ. I think the scene here, we can imagine, is very much like that which would have happened in Noah's day, you know? For all those years, Noah was building an ark. The people surrounding him made fun of him. The, the, the Bible tells us that he was a preacher of righteousness. And yet, when the flood came, it was just Noah and his family that were on the ark that day. And as the floodwaters rose, you remember it says that God himself sealed the ark as the floodwaters rose? We can imagine how many people were banging and crying out to get inside now. 
I think that's an apt picture of what Jesus is describing. I want you to notice a couple key things about these people. First of all, they call Jesus Lord and freely make requests of him. In other words, these people call out to him in a manner that indicates knowledge of him. In this context, it means that they were acknowledging his exalted status and perhaps even his divine authority. They seem to have some inkling that he is God. Secondly, they also claim to have a close familiarity with him. They recount how they ate and drank in his presence. Maybe these people were part of the thousands who ate of the loaves and fishes that Jesus miraculously multiplied. They also say that they were the ones present in the crowd when he was teaching and preaching in their streets. But notice this, notice this. Though they claim to know Christ, Christ does not know them. Two different times he says to them, I do not know where you come from. And so he dismisses them and decries them as workers of evil. They will be cast into outer darkness, he says, into hell. And in that place, there will be a weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, one of the most terrible things to happen in in modern culture is how we make hell a punchline. How we describe hell as a place, yeah, you know, there's fire, there's misery, and, you know, you hear people make jokes about, you know, how, oh yeah, even the coffee will be cold in hell. Well, actually, that's something people want nowadays. They want cold coffee. I don't quite understand that. People joke about, well, I might as well go there. That's where all my friends are going to be. Brothers and sisters, hell is a place of eternal conscious torment where there is a weeping and a gnashing of teeth. It's not a punchline. It is the eternal destination of anyone who does not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is clear here in verse 28 that Jesus is now speaking to his Jewish brethren. You know, they thought they had automatic entrance into the eternal kingdom because they were sons and daughters of Abraham. But Jesus here says that as they are being cast out from his presence, they will see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. Can you imagine that moment? You have all these Jewish people who thought that they had a lock on heaven. And Jesus is saying, depart. And as they go, several things become crystal clear to them. Number one, that the kingdom of God has come and they were wrong to place their faith in their physical lineage. Number two, that being tacitly religious and having proximity to Christ does not get you into heaven. And three, that even believing the right things about Jesus will still lead you to hell if you are not trusting in his person and work as your only hope of salvation brothers and sisters this is a stark warning to us all the day will come when the door is shut when you die in this life and listen none of us knows how when or where that will be but the day you die the door is shut your opportunity to be saved is gone Or if you are blessed enough to live until Christ's return, when the trumpet sounds and the sky rolls back, it's too late for you. The door is shut. There will be no entry. There will be no court of appeal. You will go before a righteous judge of all the universe and he will say, depart from me for I never knew you. 
and you too will be cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you understand that this is why in the providence of God, Judas was chosen as one of the disciples? So that we would see and know and understand that even someone who who was a disciple of Christ, even someone who traveled with him, even someone who ate around the fire with him, even someone who was one of his closest circle of disciples, even he could still be lost. Even he could still have a heart that was defiant. Even he could still be clinging to his own ideas of who God should be. And the fruit of his heart was ultimately borne out in his betrayal of his Lord. Judas is that warning to us all, brothers and sisters. Fly to Christ. Religion does not save you. Jesus saves you. That takes me to my final point, and that is the unexpected reversal in the kingdom. The unexpected reversal in the kingdom. Look at the last two verses, 29 and 30. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. Jesus here is making reference to the messianic feast of consumption, the the marriage feast of the lamb that would take place at the final and ultimate establishment of God's kingdom. Jewish rabbis and scribes would often make reference to this time when all good Israelites would be ushered into God's presence to feast with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And do you know what made this so appealing to so many Jews is that they believed they would finally be free from any Gentile presence there. They believed that heaven was for Jewish people only. But contrary to everything they thought they knew, Entry to the kingdom of heaven was not based upon racial descent, but upon faith in Christ. And on the basis of faith, Jews were not going to be the only beneficiaries of the saving power of God. Many were going to come from east and west, north and south, meaning from all nations and all peoples. Multitudes would be coming from all over the world to recline at the feast with the Lord of salvation. That is the message here. And brothers and sisters, in in such a law-heavy sermon, and I know this sermon is that this morning, And it's meant to be heard with that heaviness because it's a warning to us. But in the midst of such heavy law, this is the good news. This is the message of hope. You see, in one sense, Christianity is the most exclusive religion in the world. There is one narrow way of salvation, faith in Jesus. Those who find the door are included and those who don't find it are excluded, period. But in another sense, in another sense, Christianity is the most inclusive of all religions. Why? Because it's not just for people of one part of the world. The gospel's not just for one particular ethnic group or for people with certain standards of morality or, with pe- or for people with certain perspectives of spiritual enlightenment. The message of the gospel is for anyone and everyone who will believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. That's the good news. You don't have to be any smarter, any more religious, or any holier than anyone else. You just have to know that you're a sinner and you ask God to forgive you as you believe in Jesus Christ. It's that simple. 
This truth is what Jesus captures with verse 30. Every person on earth, every world religion has their own ideas about who God is and who will be welcomed first in his kingdom. Again, this was certainly true for the Jews. They thought that if you were ethnically part of Israel, then you automatically had the master key to the pearly gates. They also thought that if you were rich, then God loved you and your presence in heaven was assured. The Israelites also thought that if you were a holy person in terms of the law, if you dotted all your spiritual I's and crossed all your moral T's, then you would be assured of God's reception and glory. They were all wrong. None of these qualities made anyone first in the kingdom of heaven. It is faith in Jesus Christ alone that saves. It is that simple. Now, as Paul said three times in Romans 1 and 2, the gospel was for the Jew first and also to the Greek. But you see, the Jews rejected the Messiah. And as a result, salvation is for the Gentiles first and then the Jews. That's what Paul gets to in Romans 9 and 10 and 11. This reality that because the Jews rejected the message, the gospel goes forth into all the world, drawing men and women from every tongue and tribe and nation. And then it will be the Jews that come last at a gathering at the end time. It's all about faith in Jesus, brothers and sisters. It's all about faith in Jesus. And the hope that is freely offered to everyone here. Philip Graham Ryken said this so well. He said, how much hope this gives to every spiritual outsider. The last will be first. You may say that you do not come from a very good background. You may think that you have done something so terrible that no one can ever accept you, least of all God. You may feel that you do not even belong in church, but Jesus has a place for you. He says the last will be first, the outsiders will become insiders, and he invites you to enter. And so will you come? You know, as we think about what Jesus says here, the The first shall be last and the last shall be first. We want to understand that Jesus himself knew what it was to be last. You know, in one sense, you have Jesus as the Messiah, the the God-man, incarnate, second member of the Trinity, the firstborn of all creation in one sense. And yet, as Jesus came to his own people, he was rejected. Though he was born a Jew, he was held as an outsider. The Bible says he came to his own people and his own people did not receive him. He came as the light of the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light. Jesus himself suffered misunderstanding, false accusations, rejection, and ultimately a torturous death. But what does he tell us here? The last shall be first. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The one who was rejected among men was rejected on our behalf so that we, through his rejection, might know acceptance before the King of kings and the Lord of lords if we trust in him. Brothers and sisters, this is is such good truth for us to remember. Jesus willingly took the place of the last so that we who believe in him may be the first.
glory in Christ your Savior. Every day, savor the greatness of the grace that He has lavished upon you for the glory of His name. Draw near to Him and know that He will draw near to you. And if you do not know this comfort, this truth, the invitation again is to come even now Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so, as it says in Revelation 22, the very last book of the Bible, the Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Come and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ alone and be saved. Let us pray. Father God, Your Word is so good. So rich. This is a strong word this morning, Lord, but what a poignant reminder to us that You are a God you are a God who is working to bring all of history to a conclusion that culminates in your people being glorified in your presence forevermore and in your enemies being cast into the lake of fire forevermore. Every human being that ever was or is or will be will exist in one of these two places in eternity. Father God, Check our hearts. Search us and try us. And let us be sure, Lord, that we are not deceived. Let us weigh and be certain that we are trusting in Jesus Christ alone, Lord. And I pray that you would grant by your spirit and word assurance of salvation to those who are truly yours. And Lord, be at work even now to draw those to yourself who may be deceived or who may be realizing for the first time in just what a dangerous spiritual place they are in. Lord, glorify Your name by drawing people even this day to the narrow door that is Christ. In Your name we pray. Amen.